Good to see you at church this morning, taking a break from all your soccer watching. I'm sure many of you have been watching the World Cup. I tried for about 10 minutes yesterday. I just It's hard for me. You can pray for me. But uh, uh, at least there's basketball on tonight, right? Uh, NBA championships still going on. I don't know if you've been following that, but uh, the Heat have been getting... Uh, beat uh, soundly by San Antonio. And what's interesting that I find that during this whole NBA Finals, while the Heat are really losing bad, they they talk about next year they may get a player by the name of Carmelo Anthony to join them, and then they can finally win it, perhaps. Uh, And actually, the Bulls have been trying to get him as well, the local team here, uh, because he's a really good player that may be coming on the market. Now, I I don't know if you know Carmelo Anthony. He's an interesting guy. He's a good player. Back in 2003, he, uh, he received an award I don't know if you watch ESPN or anything. If you watch ESPN, they have these awards, and you get these ESPYs. And so he received this ESPY. Now, usually when you get an award, what you're supposed to be doing is is thanking everybody that helped you get to where you're at in life. But what Carmelo Anthony did as a young guy, so we'll give him a break, but in 2003, he stands up and he said, I would like to thank myself for all my hard work and dedication. (laughs) Isn't that great? Yeah. And, and, you know, there's actually something more arrogant than thanking yourself. It's exalting yourself at the expense of others. And since we're talking about sports, let me mention uh, Ricky Henderson. If you ever watch baseball, Ricky Henderson, he broke Lou Brock's base-stealing record. And on the day he broke that record, you know, they anticipated him breaking it on a certain day, and Lou Brock was actually there. And once Henderson broke the record, I think they stopped the game. And this is what Ricky Henderson said. He said, Lou Brock was a great base stiller, but today I am the greatest. Isn't that awesome? It's just this, this great, I have achieved something, I'm something else. And that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because what we're going to do this next year is we're going to encourage the men in this church. When I say men, I mean 13-year-old on up, okay? So if you're in college, you're a man, all right? So we're going to encourage the men in here to accomplish great things, We really want you to pull off some great things, and we want to see some awesome growth in your life, see you step up and hit life head on and be firing on all cylinders and fulfilling your God-given responsibilities. And and there's four areas we're going to really push you at in this greatness. We're we're going to, we want to see Christ-like character. We want to see you pursue Christ-likeness is all you got. We want to see you step up in your, your relationship responsibilities, even in the hard situations. We also want to see you uh, get some diligence and some creativity in your school and your work, your vocation. And we also want to see you take gospel risk. And so we're going to push the men this year to strive for this God-centered greatness. And, and I, am, I am convinced, unless I'm misreading the Bible, that a, a lot of you men are actually going to uh, do great things for the Lord. And in fact, I, if I'm reading the Bible right, which I think I am, I believe God sanctifies, which means that he comes into your life. He is out to change you. And I believe over this next year, we're going to see Christ-like character develop. We're going to see some of you start to deal with some difficult relationships that you have been avoiding. We're going to see some of you start to get a vision for your vocation. And so you're not just going through the motions. And we're going to see some of you men take great gospel risk. So we're going to see growth over this next year. I expect it in the Lord Jesus Christ. I expect it in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. I expect this God-centered greatness to happen. But when it does... 
what is your acceptance speech going to be like in your mind and your heart? Wow. I've done some great things. Other guys are doing okay. But I am the greatest. What I have seen happen in our church and in my life is that when God starts to change you and you start to fire on all cylinders and you get kind of confident in what he's doing, there is a temptation to be proud and to look down on others. So my warning to you guys for today, throughout the year, is this. Don't turn God's grace into a weapon of pride. Don't turn God's grace into a weapon of pride. Don't do it. I've seen it in your life. I've seen it in my life. And one of the things I want to say, look, you know, guys, when things are going good, how you can start looking down on other people. You know you're guilty of that, right? How you get such a smug, judging attitude that others can't do and get their stuff together like you have, right? You know what I'm talking about. I, know, I feel it as well. And so today on this Father's Day, I'm going to address the men. And, of course, I'm going to address the women too because women can be just as arrogant, just as proud in their growth as well and looking down on other women and other people. So don't turn God's grace into a weapon of pride. Now, now what we should do on Father's Day, right, is what you're supposed to do on Father's Day, you're supposed to pick a biblical character who's done this, right, who has turned God's grace into a weapon of pride. But, uh, you know, we don't, we don't pick and choose texts necessarily, usually at all. Whatever text shows up, that's the one I'm preaching. And so you may think, oh, what a special Father's Day message. Well, actually, it's just the one that showed up today. In Romans. And in fact, rather than taking one character, what we're going to do, I'm going to show you an entire people who are turning God's grace into a weapon of pride. An entire people group who've done that. So this is going to be difficult and challenging. If we were dealing with one character, it would be a lot easier. But we're going to deal with an entire people group, and that is specifically the Gentiles. And we are going to see what they did in Romans chapter 11. I'm going to go ahead and turn there to Romans chapter 11. One of the most difficult chapters to understand and to preach in Romans, but we're going to do it today. Now, understand that Romans 11 comes in a very long argument. I understand also that some of you are new today and you have not been a part of this argument, so I'm going to back you up a bit and kind of run you through where we've been going. The question we've been trying to answer over the last several weeks is, did God's promises to Israel fail? Now, you don't have to write this down. This is just kind of overview here. In chapter 9, we saw, no, God's Israel, promises to Israel did not fail because God does not elect everyone within Israel for salvation, but only a remnant. We talked about election. In chapter 10, we saw that Israel was also responsible for failing to believe in the Messiah. And then chapter 11, we got two difficult um, sermons this week and next week that God is still saving some Jews today and there will be a greater end gathering in the future. That's the end times when Jesus comes back event. But for today, we're going to look at the first part of Romans chapter 11. And I want to give you a quick overview of where we're going today just to keep you organized. We're going to look at the remnant of believing Jews. There are still Jews who believe today. There are Jews who believe back in the time of Paul. Then we're going to look at the salvation of the Gentiles. And then we're going to hone in on the last part concerning 
the Gentiles turning God's grace into a weapon of pride. This is going to require a lot of work. Maybe you're a little hot in here, but hey, the lights are on me. I got a coat on. I'm hot too. So let's uh, stay awake. Let's get into the Word, and let's see what the Word of God has to say. And let's start with the remnant of believing Jews. Verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. Now, we end at chapter 10, where God was holding out His salvation to Israel, only to have them reject their Messiah. So does Israel's rejection mean that God is done saving the Jews and has rejected them forever? Now, understand this, okay? The promises came to the Jews. Most of the Jews did not believe in Jesus. So is God done saving the Jews through Jesus? Is he done with them for good? Because they were, And the answer is, by no means. Prove it to me, Paul. Prove to me that God is still saving the Jews. Look at verse 1 again. I asked then, has God rejected his people... By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. There's always a remnant of true believers chosen by grace. It's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. It's true today. Remember the prophet Elijah, after he confronted the Baal, the false prophets thought he was the only believer left in Israel. And God came to encourage him and said, look, man, there are 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In addition, in our context right now, Paul is saying, look, has God rejected the Jews? Paul's like, dude, no way. I'm a Jew. I'm proof. I'm a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God is still saving a remnant of Jews. Back in the time of Paul, God is still saving a remnant of Jews today. My family used to live in Memphis, so when I would go and visit them, since we were traveling on a Sunday, we would go to the church on Saturday, and one of the few churches that would meet on a Saturday was the Messianic Jewish congregation. They were Jews who believed in Jesus. And I was there worshiping with them uh, on a Saturday. Uh, I met a woman, and we were interacting, and she and I told her we were from Evanston, at Evanston Bible Fellowship near Northwestern, and she's like, I used to live in Evanston. And she was so pumped up that God was doing a work in Evanston and that college students were following Jesus at Evanston. I kid you not. I'm walking away to my car. She approaches me in the parking lot. She whips out her check and gives me a check for our church. It just met her. You see, there are still Jews today who love Jesus. Jesus is still saving a remnant of Jews today. That's reality. But the other reality is most Jews during Paul's time and most Jews today, most of the Jews that you know, I live in Skokie. It's a field with Jewish. They don't believe in Jesus. And you ever asked yourself, what is going on? All those promises came to the Jews. Not many are believing in Jesus. And even today, they're not. What is going on? Chapter 11 is trying to explain that to you. 
Most of the Jews during Paul's day, even today, are not being saved. Look at verse 7. What then? This is the reality. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. They failed to obtain salvation because of their unbelief. In addition to their unbelief, God has locked them into this spirit of a stupor where they're unresponsive to the gospel. So instead of a table of feasting on the salvation promises of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, this table is flipped over in destruction. And most of the Jews during Paul's day and most of the Jews so far today are refusing to believe in Jesus and they are locked into a spirit of stupor, of unbelief. And you kind of wonder, what is going on? Is there anything positive coming of this? Brings us to point two, the salvation of the Gentiles. Most of you are Gentiles. Look at verse 11. So I ask, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Which means, is God done with them for good? Is God done with the Jews for good? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So we are told that Israel stumble, trespass, failure to believe in the gospel. You know what that does? It's opened the door for salvation to come to the Gentiles. So God has set it up. I'm just telling you the way God has set it up. He said, at the present time, very few Jews are believing in Jesus. So that a massive amounts of Gentiles all over the world, including you sitting here today, may be saved. And you may think, what is going on? What about the Jews? All of us Gentiles are being saved and not the Jews. Let me just say something. For most of history, have Gentiles or Jews been saved? It was mainly the Jews, right? Remember the Old Testament, right? Did you see the Gentiles being God-fearers and following the Lord in the Old Testament? No, it's rare. God had his eyes set on the Jews, and most of the Gentiles were perishing. That's the Old Testament. And yet, here comes the gospel in Jesus Christ. And now we have this sea. It looks like a reversal. The Jews are the ones being hardened to the gospel. And now... Masses amounts of Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being saved. But God is not done with the Jews, for their stumble is not a permanent fall. In fact, what is supposed to happen and what will happen is that the current situation of the salvation of the Gentiles, I don't know if you know about this, but you being saved, Gentiles, is meant right now to stir the Jews up to jealousy. You ever thought about that? Your salvation of Jesus is meant to stir all the promises that were aimed at the Jews. It's now meant to stir them up to jealousy so they will trust in Jesus. That's what it says. Look at verse 13. Look at the jealousy here. Verse 13. Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order to somehow, here it is, make my fellow Jews 
jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? That last phrase there, life from the dead, I'm going to put it aside till next week around when we talk about end times, Christ coming back, massive amounts of Jews coming to Jesus. We'll talk about that next week. Keep the focus on what God is doing now. He's saving a lot of Gentiles. And the reason why he's saving these Gentiles, and part of it is to make the Jews jealous and stir them up. All right, now I'm going to stop. I'm going to tell you a story because I really want you to get this. The story was originally told um, by president of my seminary, Chuck Swindoll, and I have pretty much stole his story, reworked it, and co-opted it for my own purposes here this morning. So here it goes. My family rarely goes out to eat. There's eight of us. So for us to go into a sit-down restaurant is so expensive, as you can imagine. I mean, it's almost like they make the, the tip just kick in, right? Party of eight. It's not fair. But anyway, I, I show up, and this is how it usually works for a family of eight. I sit down, and they just know, they know how it works. Okay, <clears throat> you can't order drinks, all right? No Coke, no Sprite, no. You just get water. And if you want to spruce things up a bit, you can order a lemon, all right? <laughs> Generally speaking, no appetizers. You kidding me? You're not getting an appetizer. No way. Our kids don't even know the word appetizer. And when it comes to a meal, what it, everybody's pretty much going to split a meal. Nobody's going to get their own meal. We're going to be splitting things, dividing things, and parceling out. Nobody gets their own meal. And don't even think about asking for dessert. No way. Enjoy. Enjoy. All right? That's how we roll at dinner when we're out, which is rare. But just imagine when we're doing our thing over here, there's this huge party sitting next to us, huge group there, and they are ordering everything, and, and we're watching them. They're all ordering drinks, anything they want, and they're ordering appetizers, and they're ordering their own meals, and they each get a soup and a salad with their meal, and they're, they're ordering desserts ahead of time. I mean, this, they're just doing their thing. They're just or, and so they take back their order. And when it came time to bring out their food, I mean, it takes several waiters and waitresses to bring out their food. And they bring them all their drinks and their soups. And they're just bringing it all out. And when that feast is laid before him, the head of the party at that table said, you know, this is not what we expected. Now, we'll pay for it. We don't want this. And so they all get up and leave. And all the foods and drinks and desserts all there. The owner comes over to our table. We're drinking her water. <laughs> He's like, do you want to move over there and have all of their food? They already paid for it. You can just have it all course kids get up let's go and so we get over there like this is what a sprite tastes like wow this is this is a salad and soup and food oh there's a dessert wow we're just feasting feast i mean just we're so happy right now the party that left about 10 minutes later they're like what were we thinking we paid for all that food and we left it all there 
what are we thinking? And, and they're like, we should go back and get our food. So they come back, and did I mention we're sitting, or they were, sitting by the window. And so we're in there eating all their food. They come by, and they're looking in the window. And we're eating their food. And we are enjoying it. And we're staring at them. <laughs> and, and, and the question is this. What is our attitude going to be? Are we going to be like, Aha, suckers! Nanny, nanny, boo, boo. <laughs> We're eating your food. What's our attitude going to be? Our attitude should be one of gratefulness. We didn't make this food. We didn't pay for this food. We're just enjoying this feast of grace. Do you see the connection? The Jews are promised the gospel feast. They left it on the table and bailed, most of them. Gentiles came in. They are just eating away. But what is the attitude of the Gentiles going to be toward the Jews? They're supposed to make the Jews jealous in the sense that we are enjoying this food. Come join us. But they're not supposed to be arrogant. And in the early church, the Gentiles were getting arrogant and having an attitude toward the Jews because the Jews rejected the feast so God must be done with them and the Gentiles were saying it's about us and they were getting this arrogant proud attitude and so what were they doing? They were turning the grace of God into a weapon of pride and that's what Paul goes right after here in the middle of chapter 11. Look at it. Verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. All right, let's stop, 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 stop. For those of you who like to, to take notes and to draw and to doodle during sermons, draw this picture, all right? Olive tree. The roots that go down to the olive tree that he's mentioning here, the picture he's giving, the roots are likely the patriarchs and all the Old Testament promises, okay? So there's the roots. They come up and they produce this olive tree. Now, the olive tree represents the people of God, both the Jews and the Gentiles. Specifically, the Jews are called, and we're going to see here in several verses, the Jews are called the natural branches. And the Gentiles are called the wild branches, okay? So you got it? Got your roots going down to the patriarchs and the promises, springing up to the people of God made up of the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews are the natural branches and the Gentiles are the wild branches. Now, Paul's agricultural metaphor is not perfect uh, agriculturally, but it is spiritual illustration. Okay, so there's your picture. There's your doodle. Here we go into the verses, the specifics. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, Jews... And you, Gentile, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. All right, so the broken off branches from the olive tree are the Jews. And they're broken off because they, they're, not, they're not believing in Jesus. But the wild olive shoots are representing the Gentiles who believe in Jesus. And so they've been grafted into the tree, and now they're sharing in the salvation promises of the patriarchs and all the promises, right? But these believing Gentiles, now check it out, who have been grafted in must not be arrogant toward the branches. 
Don't be arrogant toward the Jews, the ones who've been broken off. Don't be arrogant toward the Jews who believe. Do not be arrogant toward the brothers and sisters who are Jews in the church. Don't be proud. And they must not look down on them. Why? Because they've been grafted in by grace. They're enjoying the feast by grace. There is nothing inherently special about the Gentiles. It's all grace. And they must not use their position of grace as a weapon of pride. Sometimes you'll see this in new believers. Uh, maybe when you were a new believer. Remember when you are a new believer, you're like, man, I'm, I'm following Jesus now. And you're leaving your old life behind. And you start to get an attitude toward those you've left behind, all the people you used to party with. You're like, man, I don't want anything to do with them. They're, they're, and you get an attitude of, of pride and of arrogance. We're not supposed to do that. We want to use this grace and worship our Lord and not turn it into a weapon of pride. And so Paul keeps pushing back, and he's going to use some extreme language. So here we go. Extreme language here, verses 19 and 20. Then you will say, because the Gentiles will say, Paul, they're saying, Paul, quit bothering us. Then you will say, branches are broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Yeah, the Jews were cut off for their unbelief. That's why they were broken off, because they didn't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Gentiles are now grafted in by faith, but it's not to be an occasion of arrogance, but to be one of fear. He explains, verse 21, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. That's a pretty extreme language. Paul's saying, look, the Jews, they're cut off because they didn't believe. If you don't stop messing around, God's going to cut you off too. If you fail to press on in believing in Jesus, you'll be cut off. You, you'll be done just the way they were for their unbelief. And when we see verses like this in the Bible, we always go into this great debate. Can Christians lose their salvation? Can they keep their salvation? And there's a big debate goes on. And, and when I think when we get to that big debate, you're missing the whole point of the warnings. The warnings are to warn you. When you are driving on a curvy highway road and there is a sign there that says, if you don't slow down to 30, you're going to go off the road. Would you go and you start debating whether you're going to fly off the road or not? When you're driving around the curvy road, you think, oh no, I'm going to fly off the side of the mountain and die. No. You slow down and you go around the mountain. These warnings in here are meant for you to heed. They are a means for your perseverance. They're not a means for us to debate whether we're losing our salvation or not. Heed the sign. If you stop believing, you stop following Jesus, you're going to be cut off. That's the warning to the Gentiles. That's the warning to us. So God's awesomeness, and we're to fear Him and His holiness and His severity. But note also, Connect it with God's severity is also his kindness. Did you see it in verse 22? Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. God's kindness has come to us in the gospel. God's kindness has come to us in those who believe. And it's God's 
kindness is not supposed to make us arrogant, but it's supposed to make us humble. Why are you saved? Because you're a mess. You've fallen short of the glory of God. And it's that kindness that's to keep you humble. But I'm going to give you some good news for some of those in here who may have, right now, there may be some of you in here who are not believing, and you may have a hard heart toward the Lord for whatever reason. Here's a word of encouragement to you as we finish up. Look at verse 23. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, talking about the Jews, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by, by, by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? That is such an encouragement for Jews who have hardened their hearts to the Lord that they can repent, believe, and be grafted back in the tree of God's people. Right now, God's grace is extended to you. If you find that you have been hardened to the gospel, you need to know that Jesus Christ has died for sinners such as you, and he is invading you right now, trying to get your attention, saying, look, you can be part of this family tree through repentance and and faith in my death and resurrection. No matter how hard that you've been running away from God and how hard your heart has bent him, his grace and kindness are still held out. If you refuse his grace and kindness, you will face the, the wrath of his severity, right? The severity of his wrath. And yet there's kindness, gospel kindness held out that you can receive through faith. And once it comes to you, this grace comes to you, my brothers and sisters, once you receive the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is not to be something you turn into pride, into arrogance. And there is, there is something that is still going on here that still is in play for the believer. Even after you believe, there is a principle that still is in play. And I want to I share this principle with you that many of you have memorized and you, and you know. It comes to the book of James, and it's all over the Bible. It says this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That is not just a verse for unbelievers. I think it still applies to believers as well. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. He's severity toward those who are proud, but kindness to those who are humble before him. This is an ongoing effect in our lives. So when you step out in pride, you start looking down on others, God's not on board. But when we are humbled by his love, then his grace is extended even more. Now, what we're going to do here in closing, this is going to be kind of fun. I'm going to talk to the guys. Girls, you can listen if you want. No, you should listen. Um, because then you can remind your guys later what I said. But I want to talk about these four areas that we're going to be hitting on throughout the year. And I want to talk about how we can have a tendency to receive God's grace to change us, and we can also have a tendency to take that grace and be arrogant about it. So the first area is going to be the area of developing Christ-like character. We want to see the men grow in personal holiness. We want to see men grow in their own private world and their relationship and their heart with Jesus. But let's just be up front and acknowledge, just here we go, acknowledge this before everybody. Many men in here have struggles with sexual purity, all right? It's not a big revelation. Many of you know that. But let's just say, not let's just say, let me say, many men in this church are finding victory. They really are. I talk to them, they're finding victory, they're walking in purity, and they're aggressively putting sin to death. 
And this victory is only by the grace of God. But what I want to say to the men who are starting to find victory in, in this area and they're, and they're starting to become pure and they're fighting sin and they're having victory, I want to say, look, be careful. Be careful you don't get arrogant. Be careful you don't get proud and start looking down on others and thinking, why, why can't that brother just get it together? Be careful. Uh, there's a verse in the Bible that kind of addresses you. It, it's, it comes from 1 Corinthians. It says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Which is basically saying, don't think you're beyond temptation. Don't think you're beyond giving in to temptation. Be on your guard with regard to your heart and the attitude in your heart. Be careful. Because if you start getting arrogant about this great victory that you have and you forget that it's God's grace that is given to us, you're going to find yourself back in the pit again. And my brothers, I don't know about you, but I don't want to see you cycle. I don't want to see you victory, arrogance, back in the pit again. Victory, arrogance, back in the pit. You know? Yeah? Don't raise a hand, but I know some of you cycle, right? Like you go through this cycle. That's got to stop. When you got the victory, praise God for his grace and stand firm in his grace. Don't stand firm in arrogance and pride. So we want to see this heart change within us. Now, the second area we want to deal with is dealing with other people. We want to see this cultivating this healthy relationships. And I know that 50, 60 percent of our church is single. But I still think the singles need to hear this as I address those who are married. I know it may be hard to believe sometimes you're single that, you know, that you may think everything's going to be great once you get married. But all of us who are married know that sometimes in marriage you have hard times, you have struggles, you have marital problems. But there are some marriages in here where you, you start to have some success. And over the years you're, you're moving toward health by the grace of God. But don't let a healthy marriage be an occasion for pride. For those of you who have a healthy marriage and you see others are struggling in their marriage, is there in, something inside of you that, that gets kind of happy? You ever get happy when other people are struggling in their marriage? It makes you feel like, you know, I'm kind of superior. I got my stuff together. If you have that attitude, let me know how things are going next week. You've got to be careful. When God gives you grace in your marriage, and you're like, wow, we're kind of healthy right now today. Don't judge other marriages. Rather, take your time to build into those other marriages. Pray for those other marriages because probably soon you're going to be the other marriage. Yeah? So when you're in these seasons of grace and growth and change, may you minister to others who are struggling, who are fighting, that they're, they're not doing so well. Another area, the third area, is pursuing vocational development. This is about your job. Some of the most arrogant men I have ever seen are those who are successful at their jobs. I'm not going to give you situations or scenarios, but sometimes there, needs, there tends to be a proud smugness about guys who have had success in their jobs. And guys, I want to tell you, if you have any success at your work, if you're making money, if you're having success, if you're climbing the ladder, it is, that is just all God's grace. Please, get rid of the arrogance and the pride. That is so, it's just nasty. 
you're not fun to be around. And if you're a boss that's like that, you're absolutely not fun to be around. So if you've had some success in your job or even success in school, let me give you this challenge. This is very, very simple. Tomorrow, when you go to work, think of ways you can help someone else succeed. When you go to work tomorrow, think of ways to help someone else do their job better through encouragement, whatever it is. You want to fight that arrogance in you? Help others do their job better. And not where you're in taking the credit, but where you're enabling their success. And the last area where I'm going to tell my story is with regard to taking risks for the sake of the gospel. Now, this is, this is embarrassing and humbling to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, last month, my wife and I went to this huge orphan conference. And it was at Willow Creek, and there were just tons of speakers there, uh, different organizations serving the vulnerable orphans around the world. And, and then for those of you who know me, I've been in this world for about six years through a variety of investigating study, and I don't need to go into my experience. You guys, you guys know me. So, but what I have found is that at times I turn this grace of God into a weapon of pride. So we're at this conference, and the speakers are up there, the, con- the, the organizations are there, and I'm like, they're, they're doing this wrong. That's, that is so wrong. No. They're going to do more harm than good. And this, this is how we're rolling in the conference, me. And, and, and my wife gently rebukes me <laughs> for being too negative. And that negativity is pride. If you are a negative person, you are an arrogant person. Oh, did I just call you out? All the negative people, you're arrogant. Yeah, I'm with you, okay? So I'm calling myself out. That's arrogance. That's pride. I, I, I could do it better. It could be done better. I'm taking this gospel risk, and I'm doing it right, not you. Uh, so that was very humbling for me. Sometimes you take gospel risk, you think you're a hot shot. But even stepping out with the risk is God's grace. If you're taking gospel risk right now, it's grace while you're doing it. Not about you. Don't turn this grace to pride. So men, I expect many successes in your lives this year. We're going to be focusing on the men a lot. As we jump into 1 Samuel, we're actually going to have a retreat uh, this winter. We're going to focus on men more and more. But let's not let the invasion of God's grace turn into pride. Let us keep before us the character of God in his severity and his kindness. Let's pray. Lord, your word is very clear that you are opposed to the proud, but give grace to the humble. And I just ask that you would forgive me and my arrogance of turning your wonderful, wonderful grace into a weapon of pride. And Forgive my brothers in here for doing that in many, many ways. Maybe that's been what's keeping us from sustained growth, is that we get some growth and then we get arrogant. 
Lord, keep us humble and broken before you that it's all about your grace, 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 your marvelous grace. You've been so kind to us in the gospel, so kind to change us. And so, Lord, we just ask that you grow the men and women in here. And as we grow, may we continue to give you glory and praise for the grace that you keep giving. In Jesus' name, amen.